Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. And here we are. A couple things off the top, kind of housekeeping items. Uh, those of you who listen to every second of these shows are probably familiar with the end sequence where our resonant and resident announcer asks you to uh, hit a like button, contribute, send us an email. No one's ever done any of those things. So I'm going to ask you personally, up front, let us know what you think. Get in touch with us, and if you like what we're doing, please consider supporting the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. There is a link in the description. Patreon.com slash Taiji Reality. T-A-I-J-I-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y. I don't expect to make much money doing this. It's not really my motivation for doing it, but it will make it a lot easier to justify continuing to do it if there is a little bit of support for it. So I am considering doing something that I've seen a number of other podcasts do, which is to take a portion of each episode and sequester it behind a paywall. I don't really want to do that, but it seems like it would be a smart thing to do. So that's something that uh, may or may not happen, but it, it seems like, yes, it probably will happen. So in this episode, I am pleased to have Colin return for what I think is a really interesting discussion. I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that I talked too much in this one. It wasn't really a fair distribution of airtime. So I apologize to Colin for that, although I think that it's pretty obvious that this was a, a joint exercise and it could not have happened without him. And it portends for really interesting conversations down the line to develop and hone in and explore the territory that we have been mapping out. So I hope you enjoy it, and uh, it's long, so you may have to break it up into bites. I Perhaps I should have done that. Perhaps I should have taken a portion of this one and stuck it behind a paywall, but I'm not going to do that just yet. Anyway, I'm, I'm making things much worse. Having already spoken too much in the episode, I'm now just blathering on here at the beginning. So let's jump to the chase and hear whatever it is that we talked about. Mm. Enjoy. So when you hit recording in Zoom, it won't allow you to? Well, I can't record because I think you're already recording. And plus, I'm on a, a mobile device, and you can only record to the server from a mobile device. I mean, from I a see. desktop. From a desktop, right. Yeah, I noticed that the first time I tried using this. Um, that's interesting. I mean, that kind of suggests that it relies on the uh, on the local machine to facilitate yeah. the recording. Yeah, but you could pay a monthly fee. I think it's 10 bucks a month, and then you could record it to their servers. Well, let's see if, uh, if the Assembly of Silence ever brings in a dollar. I'll start thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Still haven't hit that milestone, huh? <laughs> no one's donated anything? Well, I've got a few friends who have, I, I've offered them a deal. I've said, if you give me a dollar a month, like $12 a year subscription, 
I'll never bother you with any of the things I ever do again. <laughs> and I got a number of people who signed up immediately. Wow. So Wow, um, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> basically announcing, oh yeah, good deal, good deal. Yeah, I don't really want to hear about what you're doing. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the people who I grew up with are not interested in any of this stuff. You know, whatever, uh -huh. whatever it is that the Assembly of Silence focuses on, let's say it's something approximating an intersection between spirituality, uh, philosophy, and alternative views, perhaps you might say. So mm -hmm. none yeah. of those things are of any interest to pretty much 99% of the people who I grew up with and, and spent most of my you know, young, young adulthood with and what have you. Uh, mm -hmm. There have been just a, a handful of people who over the course of my life I've met who are in any way interested in having a discussion about these things. So I'm hoping that that handful represents a distribution across the globe that's more significant than, <laughs> than what, you know, th th than what I am uh, immediately yeah. familiar with. And that's one of the reasons why I reached out to you and, and think of the Assembly of Science as being kind of a platform for people who really don't fit neatly into any of the categories within philosophy or spirituality as it's commonly thought. Because, you know, philosophy and spirituality definitely have a lot of overlap, but typically you don't run into people who really combine the two very much. You know, it seems that yeah. there's a tendency within the philosophical world to really de-emphasize spiritual aspects of being. And, and you could say similarly that um, within the so-called spiritual community, there is a tendency to de-emphasize critical thinking. <laughs> yeah, you know? de-emphasize, I think, is a, a nice way to put it. I think uh, I would say vilify <laughs> in some cases. Well, yeah, I think that's one way that you uh, maintain group integrity, or you know, I don't know if integrity is the right word. Let's say group protocol or identity mm -hmm. is by vilifying some other. And unfortunately, that does seem to be kind of a, a fact when it comes to the way that living things organize themselves. It's not just the attraction principle, there's also the aversion principle that kind of helps to yeah. circumscribe an organization and keep it, yeah. you know, self-replicating, uh, self perhaps, something along those lines. Yeah. You know? In order to have self, you have to have other. Otherwise, yeah. you don't know what self is. Yeah, and it's a, it's sort of a tragic fact of existence. <laughs> it probably, is totally is. <laughs> but on the other hand, There's you know, speaking of the other, the other way, <laughs> right? The other is getting thrown into the words here a lot, which is kind of interesting to parse that out. You know, any other way, you know, yeah. and on the other hand, without the other, which tends to have that aversion quality assigned to it, although there is the attraction mm -hmm. element as well. Uh, and and there's a lot of interesting stuff that that comes out about that. But without that, there would be no fundamental dialectic in the universe, as far as I can tell. Like basically, the universe relies upon the sense of otherness in order for there to be something. Yep. Uh, and yeah. that kind of cascades down through the all the various hierarchies of being into yep. the most mundane level where.
you know, organizations of human beings are inexorably drawn towards demonization of some other group just so that they can keep their shit together. Yeah. I bet, I bet it's possible to have other without the demonization, but yeah, we definitely do seem to rely on that extra little aspect of it. I mean, I, I think it's possible to go, okay, the other is important, you know, in order to define myself and to define the group that I like to exist within. Um, but yeah, demonization seems to be kind of the standard a standard aspect to how most humans operate. Well, you could and, say uh, that the intensity yeah. of the of the aversion indicates the degree to which the group is relying upon the enemy to maintain its identity. So, in some respects, yeah, you, the 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 worse the uh, attitude is towards the other, the more dependent they are upon that other in order to keep it together. It's kind of an indication of the of the severity of the conditions under which everyone's living. Cause I think it's probably true that when, when things are more even keeled, it's because there's less pressures in general on everyone. And so there's less of a need to push that aversion button. Yeah. So as to keep everything together. And we see that actually, I think within recent history here in the United States, you know, <laughs> we had this kind of post-war boom that created a great deal of affluence. And what kind of blossomed from that was this idea of, you know, we're the Pepsi generation and it's, you know, one world and we are the world and, you know, the kind of globalism, neoliberal veneer that got placed on everything, this idea that somehow or another, if we just, you know, made the right products and everyone was a really good consumer, then we'd all get along in the whole world. And it was just this sort of fantastic, you know, in comparison with the darkness of what World War II suggested, it was a beautiful vision and one which really came crashing down when everyone realized that basically neoliberalism was a fraud and a kind of a cover for neoconservatism. And, um, yeah. and so now we're back. And I wish everyone realized that. <laughs> It doesn't well, seem mean, to me like many people actually realized that. Well, I think that the people who realized it were the people elsewhere around the world who were getting screwed by, you know, the uh, the empire's imperialist designs, yeah. which is what's always happening. And uh, yeah. but that was the rhetoric kind of placed on all of it. And as John Perkins points out in his uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, it's. Uh, mm -hmm you know, this, this kind of program that was established to sort of set up these, these projects that were ill-fated from the get-go and that would essentially economically enslave whole nations and, uh, yep. and allow, you know, Western corporations to go in and get resources at a cut-rate discount and exploit labor at a very cheap cost and you know, take all of the booty back home. Are you saying it's a conspiracy? <laughs> okay, well, that's another word. You know, it's one of, <laughs> words are really, really tricky because... I know. We, you know, conspire means to breathe together, right? Yep, yep. 
so obviously everyone is in some respects we're a social animal so we have to mm-hmm. work together in order to make things happen and i guess there you know if you want to be most effective then your plan can't be public knowledge so the yeah. people who are who are uh, making the boldest moves in the world are are doing mm-hmm. you know synchronized activities that are not public knowledge i just heard a yeah. really interesting I heard a really interesting interview with a woman who wrote a book about surveillance capitalism. It's, a, it's on a uh, podcast that's called Hidden Forces. It's a really interesting podcast. I, I really like it a lot. And she talks about the degree to which what's going on in technology right now, the degree to which we don't know what's going on. You know, there is this backroom type of stuff. It's basically a black box, all the various algorithms that are processing all the information that we're freely offering to them, uh, (laughs) including this podcast. And, Mm -hmm. and you know, it all gets analyzed. And we don't really know exactly how it's being analyzed and what the objectives are. I mean, we have some sense of what some of the objectives are, but, you know, we're basically ignorant as to what's being, yeah. uh, I'm going to use the word, conspired about in, yeah. uh, in the various you know, meetings occurring within the yeah. R&D departments at these gigantic whatever, technology companies. Whatever system has to listen and analyze and kind of compile all of this information has to be so complex, like beyond, no matter what the intentions of its creators are, I just feel like whatever is coming going to come out of that is going to be completely un- unpredictable uh, i don't know if it'll be intelligent um like as i don't know that's another whole uh, we have to define intelligence <laughs> but you know what i mean you know basically alive like a like a human is alive um right. but it will certainly see it is i think it'll be totally convincing that it is which passes the what the turing test or whatever uh-huh. Well, I think uh, this is probably something worth trying to drill into a little bit. Um, there's, no, there's no doubt that the first part of what you say is, is absolutely true, that to some extent, the development is defining what ends up happening. And I think that's actually one of the weak points in her argument. I'm going to look up her name while we're discussing this. But, you know, she basically says there was kind of a golden age of the vision of what the internet could be, and she identifies that as being somewhere in the 90s where, you know, we saw it as kind of a self-empowerment tool and that it would help democracy to be more effective and and give everyone uh, greater autonomy in their lives. And what's happened is really quite the opposite. And she thinks that, you know, we can understand this situation and, and, do something to remedy it. And I'm not so sure. I have a feeling that technology is, well, the way I think of it is in terms of Chinese five element theory. So I've, mm. I think in the past episodes, I've discussed this a little bit, but the element metal is kind of the consequence of the activity of the previous stages. And it's, it's a structure. And the structure kind of demands that things be operated within that. And so that's kind of what you see happening within technology. Something gets invented. No one really understands exactly what the fuck it is at the time that it's invented. Mm -hmm. And then you start to realize, oh, I could use it for this and that. And it sets up a 
base upon which other things are then built. And everything has kind of a consequence that means, oh, there's a new understanding of what the consequences are of these systems that we've put into place. And now we're operating within those consequent systems. Mm -hmm. So it seems like that's unavoidable. Like what you were, what you were saying is we are beholden to the structures of the technology as we develop it further. And that's kind of what's really going on. What's the thing that's really going to work given the context of what just happened beforehand, the various tools available to us? And that's kind of how the whole yeah. thing has progressed. You know, I, I'm, I don't. So in that sense, there isn't a conspiracy. You know what I mean? Like there's an idea that people know what they're doing and that this is a grand plan and grand design to kind of you know, enslave the human race and what have you. And it's like, okay, well, you know, there are probably some people who've had that in mind for a while. And there is some evidence that actually Alan Turing himself thought that that is what the computer was for. You know, there, there was an interesting documentary that talks about his inability to control himself because he was a, a homosexual at a time where it was really not cool to be a homosexual. And they gave him all these freaking drugs to try to prevent him from... Ugh acting out his, I don't know if you're familiar with his story. Not his specific, no. Yeah, he had a rough, rough time of it. I hope I'm, uh, I've got the right guy. It's Alan Turing who cracked the Enigma code, right? I'm not sure. All I know of him is that he, of the, basically the, the Turing test. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that it's Alan Turing who uh, not only cracked the Enigma code and built one of the first computing devices in order to accomplish that, but envisioned what the computer would become and that part of it had to do with controlling human beings and that in many respects he was motivated psychologically because of his inability to control himself. But I think also what we saw at that time was that, you know, humanity was out of control because we were freaking building nuclear weapons and starting to use them. And everyone realized this is a disaster. And, and prior to that, there were all of these major social revolutions where just masses of people were creating absolute chaos on, on the surface of the planet. And it was, you know, I think, I think that largely what we're talking about is a serious problem when it comes to managing large populations. We've got a very large population now that needs to be in some way or another in line, you know, there has to be some kind of organization. Otherwise, we're really going to be making an even bigger mess than we're already making. And so it makes sense on a, you know, if you can reframe it in these terms, then you don't have to think of it as being like some evil conspiracy out to destroy the species. It's more like, well, here we are in a situation with many billions of people on the planet and, and a tendency for things to go awry, having gone through two world wars. It's like, yeah, we better figure out some way to actually be able to control the behavior of human beings or we are screwed. So you can look at it in those well, I terms. Definitely, I definitely, I don't know if you saw my last video. I, I think I went, I said, who is Dean Clifford? And I kind of went into his views on what the government is. And he went through a whole phase where he was like, the government is totally evil. And I feel like his perspective now is actually the government's, the per, it's really a beautiful, perfect system for controlling people who believe that we should control others through coercion. And um, basically you're only controlled by the government if you believe that because you're gonna become a member of it and thus have to follow its rules. And once you become aware that uh, 
you know, basically of natural law, you know, that there is a such thing as right and wrong and that you are ultimately responsible. You don't need a government to hold you responsible. Then you are safe. You are a person who is safe to operate outside of that. Uh, but basically, you know, no one, almost nobody is aware of that. I actually don't remember what you just said or what I said. Uh, yeah, I, I, I actually did see that video. I really enjoyed it. Um, and, and I think that's an interesting progression that he went through apparently in his I haven't looked into him yet, so I don't know much more than what you said uh, in the video. I don't know anything more than what you said in the video about mm -hmm. him. But um, it sounds like a really interesting progression of line of thought about what it is that's going on right now. And I do think that that's a more encompassing view to to understand that a lot of these systems are in place for a really good reason. And you yeah. could say that, okay, well, if if you don't want to take this for lack of a better term, let's say spiritual philosophical path where you kind of forge your own way, then, mm -hmm. then these systems are really a good thing. You yeah. Know, what, what else would we do? You know, what, what, what's the option? It seems like on a certain level, there's a kind of divine justice happening here. And, and I think it actually mirrors mm -hmm. evolutionary biology. I think that basically the same thing happened with cell collectives. We had, you know, basically a, of a long period of time where you had this growth in population. I think we've talked about this mm -hmm. before. I'm not sure, but I know I've talked about yep, it in previous did. episodes. And, and then you have this specialization that started to take place. And then you have these collectives that start to form. And they come into increased contact, uh, conflict with each other. And so they have to kind of, there's more of a sense of otherness that gets uh, develops, an intensity of aversion to the other collectives Right. Mm -hmm. And um, and part of what's happening while that's going on is a organizational process within these collectives. And yet at the same time, while all that is happening, there are individual microorganisms that are still doing their own thing. You know, and I think which right. actually still make yeah. up the majority of of. Uh, of biomass, maybe I'm not correct about yeah. that, but I think that no, it's no. I think I think that's accurate. I think you're right about that for sure. Yeah, it seems like. I mean, I would say organization is ultimately going to be important, uh, no matter what. But it doesn't have to be coercive, but it will necessarily be coercive. And I believe this is essentially what natural law is. It's just if if the members of the organization believe that coercion is appropriate then they, those members will be controlled through coercion. They have to be, otherwise, you know, to complete chaos. Well, one of the things that was interesting about this discussion that I heard on Hidden Forces, and it was actually with a woman named Shoshana Zuboff, and it's episode 79 of Hidden Forces podcast with Dimitri Kofinas. And um, she was talking about the difference between kind of what you might say was the modern modernist totalitarian states that exerted, you know, the iron fist type of domination over people and the kind of, she calls it instrumental totalitarianism that's happening mm. now in the information age. And she says basically that what's, what's demanded of you is not any particular response or behavior, but rather that you maintain the flow of access to the information you're generating. 
That's it. That that fundamentally well, at this. I don't. I don't understand. Would you mind uh, explaining it a different way? So yeah, she's saying that um, at this present moment in the development of information technology, what it's doing with people is certainly experimenting with influence. But the real demand being placed is not that people all behave a particular way, right? So the kind of coercion aspect is not emphasized, at least at this point. The primary emphasis and what it really demands from all of us is that we freely share our information, that we maintain inputs into the system. That's all that's really being demanded of everyone right now. I don't, I don't feel like that's demanded. I don't feel like that's demanded of me. Like, I feel like I could easily step out and exist outside the system. And basically the only reason I continue to exist in it is because I feel like it's important to influence it. So I, maybe I don't understand what you're saying, or I don't, I don't feel the, I don't feel like I have any sort of threat against me to continue to exist within this system. Well, I think that, um, there's always going to be, um, non-compliance within any demand that's made by any system. So, you know, maybe on some level you're, 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 you have an attitude of, of non-compliance and that's something that, that probably is flagged already on, you know, probably for me as well, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. um, but you know, it'd be interesting to see what the consequences are. I mean, the point that she makes is that if you want to participate in, in society now, mm-hmm we're increasingly being forced to conduct all of our interactions on these uh, in this in this technological medium so you know banking, not really forced though only because we're ignorant of how to live without it we don't have to be ignorant of how well to live without it. but but what we do is we become increasingly isolated if we if we refuse to use this so it'd be difficult to you know you and i would have no relationship were it not for this right and That's staying true. in touch, mm-hmm. staying in touch with people in general becomes incredibly difficult without mm-hmm. the use of this technology. And in a way, that's that's the whole thing right there. You know, unless you happen to be living in uh, the place where you where you are with the people who you want to stay in touch with, which very few of us are, <laughs> then then we're forced to essentially uh, use these information highways in order to maintain contact and just even simply to like arrange to meet for lunch somewhere or something like that. You know, the most mundane aspects of life have been, uh, are now facilitated and it's, you know, remarkably convenient and just way simpler than what we would have had to do in the past. So there's definitely benefit to those who are participating in that regard. Yep, definitely. But the, uh, but the, you know, what it is that's going to happen down the line is the question. And that's one of the things that she talks about, too, that they have this, you know, a phase that they call actuation, which will be something we don't know what, <laughs> you know, we can imagine. And I'm sure we can imagine all kinds of horrors uh, and, you know, perhaps some beneficial outcomes as well. But, you know, when the rubber hits the road is going to be that actuation phase and see what it is that actually ends up being the net result yeah yeah to to bring the more i don't remember spiritual i guess uh back like into this conversation i feel like Mm. the um 
the machine cannot compete with what we are. Like, um, I don't know, you probably don't know who Sethic Esposa is, um, mm. but he's basically a guy on YouTube. He, he considers himself to be a wizard as well, like me. And um, basically, he says that we are the true technology, and technology is that technology is based on us and will always be limited because it is an imitation. And uh, I agree with that, and I think that ultimately, it's going to become obvious that it is it cannot compete. But we will go through a phase where you know ninety ninety five percent of humanity basically gives up their soul to it. I mean, I would uh, I would say I, to me that's what they're going to do. They're going to upload themselves to it. And they're going to basically give it what it wants, the system, and basically allow their body, which is the thing which is actually connected to what I would call the creator, they're just going to let it die. And that's the thing of true value. And, um, and all, all that will be left is the people who saw beyond that. And in a way, that's not such a bad outcome, but uh, it's still mm -hmm. kind of sad. I hear that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a fascinating way of putting it. I completely agree. And um, let's poke poke at that for a little bit. But tell me the name of the person you just referred to and spell it maybe because I don't I couldn't make it out. It's Sethicus is his first name. So it's S-E-T-H. I think it's I-K-U-S. Okay. And then his last name is Boza, B-O-Z-A. And B -O -Z -A? he has a YouTube channel called Black. Yeah, and his YouTube channel is called Black Earth Productions. Interesting. That's quite a name. Yeah, and I believe it's his real name. Wow. Uh, yeah. So that actually, what you just said, captures the second part of um, something that we were referring to before, the, the question of whether or not the gathering process in, in this communication network eventually congeals into some kind of an intelligence. And at the same time, the consequences of the participants who hand themselves over to that ever more consolidating network existence. Mm -hmm. You had said that you have your doubts as to whether or not it would ever be a real living intelligence. And so mm -hmm. I would point back to evolutionary biology and say, okay, at first, we had these collectives of cells that were loosely arranged and which, as environmental pressures became more difficult, they would have to sacrifice each of their individual autonomy more and more in order to operate as a group. And as a consequence mm -hmm. of that, there was a greater need for there to be a networking between them to facilitate and coordinate their activities. And so... Mm -hmm. It seems to me that that's basically the same process that's being played out here and that we, the intelligence within our bodies, is a, are essentially the result of that. And, and I, I agree with that, but I would say that we maintain that connection to source or creator because that connection is present in all of the parts which make us up. But I would say if people upload themselves to a machine and allow their bodies to be destroyed that machine does not have a connection. Now, if it maintains, you know, matrix style, the bodies, and thus, you know, is drawing energy from that infinite, what I would call an, an infinite source of energy, an infinite source of creative energy, which it can channel through the biology, then yeah, I would say it would be, it would be an intelligent 
uh, machine. I mean, I wouldn't even call it a machine at that point. It is a new species. Well, I guess the question, I mean, it seems to me that if we're talking about the source of divine energy, then whether or not any given individual node recognizes it, that is the source for its being. It is the source for its being, but it doesn't mean that it is endowed with the creative energy, right? So a computer is completely de deterministic. It, it cannot vary from whatever, and, and, and it just uses the energy supplied. But I don't think that that's what we are. I think that we do have a, a tap, like we do are able to tap into an infinite source of energy, and this is this is where novelty comes from. Mm. And I don't. A deterministic machine does not have access to it. It can only imitate that. Well, we could say and that so it was cells have it. a. We could say that cells have a far more deterministic uh, mode of behavior than we do, who are made up of cells. So even well, the, you know that. I don't is know a, if I'd say that either. I mean, I, I think it's it's deterministic in that it's predictable. Uh, but humans are can totally predictable too. So then the question is, well, what is the real differentiation? Well, they're not, humans aren't perfectly predictable. That's, that would be the differentiation. I would say there is always the opportunity for choice to deviate from the pattern. Well, yes, that's true. And I guess to some extent you could say that that's true of cells as well. And that's why you have things like cancer. You got to wonder whether a cell that's not, um, acting like the other cells that's uh, either choosing to express a protein or not, is that actually a choice or is it just like a mechanical failure? You know, I mean, th these are things that are really difficult to, to pin down. You know, science tends to treat it as if it were a mechanical failure, Yeah. but it may be that it's a choice. You know, you can, I remember there was a, a healer in Thailand whose whole attitude was everything has to do with whether or not the cells are happy. Like they're basically going to function well if they're happy, and if they're not happy, they're not going to behave. <laughs> you know, <they're, laughs> uh, yep. I just love the the simplicity of that concept, and I, I think there's some basic truth to that. Yeah, I think that's the most important. That's the first thing that anyone should focus on when they're trying to improve their life. It's just, I would I would say most most specifically the mitochondria, but I mean those are just one example of cells within the body. Uh, but I think those are the most important. But yeah, if you improve that their situation, your entire you're going to have so much more energy. You're going to feel so great. You're going to improve your situation, and then you're going to improve the situation of your fellow. If you consider yourself to be kind of a cell, then your fellow cells around you. That's fascinating to me on a number of levels because uh, Lynn Margulis says that the mitochondria are actually the. Uh, descendants of the ancient anaerobic bacteria that started this whole process, that the uh, original life forms were essentially a single type of anaerobic bacteria that populated the planet to the extent that they created too much oxygen, that was their effluence, and that's what sort of drove the next evolutionary phase where they were forced to burrow into each other in order to create eukaryotic cells, and that the mitochondria within our cells yep. is the kind of ancient remnant of the one who had burrowed into its neighbor and it developed a way of processing mm -hmm. what was essentially a toxic environment by cooperating with this new enclosure, with a new barrier.
you know, with a new kind of way of delineating the other, you could say. Yep. Which is exactly what we're doing. Well, which I, what I think like almost all of us are going to do. I don't know if I'm going to go along with it unless there's a, an organization doing that who I feel is doing it morally or at least in a way that I feel comfortable with. But yeah, I mean, we're basically going to be the new mitochondria. And who knows what were the mitochondria before the mitochondria. They probably have their own little strange energy source deep inside of them. And maybe that chain goes back forever. Right. So then, you know, in this framework, it's, it's hard to point out something that's really unnatural here. And, you know, like a malevolent consciousness, which is what we might tend to want to assign to the machine consciousness, you know, if it does ultimately end up having an experiencer within the networks that are controlling all of these uh, human nodes. Well, I would, I would just say it's coercion. That's, that's the... That's the line for me. If it operates in order for the body to function, the cells have to do their freaking job. It's a coercive relationship in order to be part of this corpus, right? That's true. But so, but they've developed so far down the path that they couldn't exist outside the body. So we're not, we're not to that point yet, right? So this system will develop and I could be a part of it or not. Well, but you can imagine that, you know, give it another few generations that, you know, the people who are really spending all the times in the machines to be able to get away from the machines and live without them might be impossible. Mm. You know, it's already kind of kind of a stretch for a lot of people. Yeah, you could be right. Well, I only see it as being a problem if people actually, there's so many people who go along with the machine that they basically decide to wipe out the rest of the people who decide to remain as they are and to live within nature. And they basically say, well, there's so few of them and they're kind of getting in our way. We kind of want this land for this purpose and they don't want us to fuck up the land. So why don't we just find some way to convince ourselves it's okay to kill them all? And I see that as the only, that's the only thing I'm personally worried about. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> well, that certainly has been the trend. I mean, if you see... The overall attitude, I mean, even prior to the development of the machine, you know, the, uh, imperialism has, has basically been a indigenous destroyer. That's just what's been going on for a couple hundred years, you know. But maybe we can stop, maybe we can stop this virus. You know, maybe this virus will still play itself out, but we can keep it from destroying the entire planet or, you know, this cell. My tendency is to think that that's... That's in God's hands. Uh, uh, you know, my, my sense is that we, are, we have a lousy record when it comes to realizing our intentions. And so if it's by force of our own particular will, my sense is that it's kind of doomed from the get-go. But I do think that there is kind of a, an overall plan where all niches are preserved within the realm of potential. And so there is, I believe, a natural world that will continue and that we do have the potential to be part of that. But I don't know that we can actually design our way towards it. Right. I don't think we can control. I mean, that woman you were talking about, she thinks we can control it. And it's, my impression is that she seems to think we can like control it from the perspective of we can understand it completely and thus control it. But I don't feel like that's ever going to be possible. It'll always move 
towards complexity faster than we can keep up. Right. But I feel like we can control it in that by recognizing we are the ones injecting it. We are the ones giving it its life. We are the one injecting energy into it. And yeah, there's a lot of total bullshit being injected into this system right now. But um, if that weren't the case, if, if um, the content people were making was actually talking about how to live in tune with the earth, how to, you know, maybe form an organization with technology, which isn't coercive. Like if, if that was what we were injecting into the system as individuals and not worrying about trying to con control it from above, then I think in a sense we can control it that way. But I mean, there's just so many people who are just totally uninterested in that, that it, I, I mean, I have to admit, I'm kind of pessimistic about it. Well, I don't think it matters like how many people take this or that attitude. I think it just matters that there is the potential for consciousness developing a relationship in a variety of different modes. And so, you know, what I would add to what you just said, which I think is a really good foundation, is to also accept and and work with this um, this really powerful and um, prevalent kind of dominating technological reality that humanity has placed itself into. And mm -hmm. so the idea that somehow or another we could realize what it's doing, analyze its structures, and then control it and change it, that to me seems, like I said, ill-fated from the beginning. But I think the idea that we can understand it and accept it and kind of adapt and be willing to incorporate it into our own existence that we're envisioning being integrated into the natural world, I think that's a healthy way of going. It's basically like making peace, you know, making peace with it, yeah. making peace within ourselves and our relationship to it, and then yeah. um, doing our best to understand what can we do so that we can still maintain a relationship with the natural world. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm totally on board with um, going along with it as long as it's not coercive. And th that really just goes down to, I just have a fundamental belief that there is a thing called natural law. There is, there is a difference between right and wrong, which implies that going down a path when you're going towards complexity, that, I mean, you basically seem to be saying that it seems like coercion is always going to come into play and is always going to be what wins. And I, I just don't, I just don't believe that. Well, I'm not quite saying that, no, because obviously there were uh, there were cells that decided, hey, I'm not participating in your cell collectives. You know what I mean? And 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 they won too. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's room for all of us on a certain level. And uh, and so the mm -hmm. the strategy of coming together into cell collectives and forming so-called higher organisms, that's one strategy that worked out. And another strategy was to remain as individual eukaryotic cells, do your individual thing, and that worked out as well. So I'm really not saying that there's any mm -hmm. like uh, definite and particular way that it's going to go. I, I imagine it's going to be similar to what happened in evolutionary history. There's going to be those who are, like you said before, essentially predisposed to be coerced into, into having their souls overtaken, let's say. You know, it's a, that, that to me reminds me of the, the abomination of desolation. It's a biblical reference. 
in prophecy mm-hmm. that that talks about the establishment of this uh, uh, you know what I think is is what's going on now mm. and um, and that is definitely I think the the cost for safety or a, mm-hmm. what appears to be safety you know it seems like the the transhumanist movement is really just a lot of people who are afraid to die who who want to who want to live forever and as a consequence they'll lose their souls it's it's like kind of divine justice in some respects so. totally yeah kind of what lord of rings is all about the uh rings of power the the ring the ring rates who wanted power and they chose to live forever and through that they you know they were totally destroyed as beings all their personality was completely wiped out and they became total slaves to sauron wow yeah i mean it's a it, clearly these ideas are are things that people have been noticing for a long time and it's amazing that you know in, in some respects we're dealing with the fabric of existence and there is no way around it it seems to just be baked into the pie just like the the other and the demonization of the other the uh, aversion to the other is also baked into the pie but at the same time you have the contradiction with that in that there's a sort of attraction to the other as well because the other becomes necessary for the maintenance of the individual or of the group identity so uh, i feel like we're kind of getting into a topic which i've been wanting to it's something that i've been kind of thinking about for a little while and i still don't have clarity on it and uh i'm trying i I'd like to understand your perspective a little on this a little more because you do talk about it, but you don't, you're not too explicit. Um, and I'll just start by, I mean, I, basically I'm going to try and dive into Christianity a little bit here. Um, but first I just want to kind of understand, you, you basically talked about it's in God's hands or whatever is God's will will be. But I mean, I, I assume you would agree that God works through us or at least can work through us. And then you talked about our will. If it's just our will, it's something that which is ultimately going to be destructive. If you do agree that God can work through us and there's a difference between that and just our soul desires, which is ultimately destructive, how do you know when it's your will versus God's will? <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, I think probably that's something that... F- falls into the can't ever be fully known. And this actually starts <laughs> to touch on, on the topic that we had agreed to discuss, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> which, we, which we hadn't quite gotten around to yet, but the question of what can really be known. Um, I think that when we can identify what we want personally, then we know that that's not necessarily part of the divine plan. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why there is so much emphasis in so many different spiritual traditions, in getting over, getting control of one's own desires. If we're being used as an instrument of the divine inspiration, we probably won't understand exactly in what way that's occurring. So in some respects, it's really just a matter of living life and doing your best and sort of suspending judgment. It's really like, don't get attached to the outcome. Are you saying that, let's say... I don't know. Let's say I want to have children. It's something that I want. It's a purely selfish desire. I can see all kinds of intellectual reasons why that's probably a bad idea. Uh, does it because it's something that I want? Does that does that mean that it's not God's will? If if I want it, does it mean it's not God's will? 
I don't think it necessarily means that, no. But I think that whether or not it occurs <laughs> is really the <laughs> bottom line. You know, you can want something and you can try really, really hard to make it occur and it just simply won't occur. So then you so, can say, well, clearly that wasn't part so of God's will. Let's say somebody wants to rape a child. Uh, that's I, I think I would I would say that's not God's will. Uh, I assume you would say that's not God's will, but he can certainly make that happen, and it certainly does happen. So the fact that it does happen, does that mean it's God's will? Well, there's certainly a lot of horrible, horrible shit that's going on, and that has gone on since the beginning of all things. You know, mm -hmm. individual nodes of consciousness have been experiencing horror and pain and all kinds of terrible things for, as far as I can tell, it's just built in, it's like built into the pie. You know, this gets down to the question of, well, if, it, you know, how can you have a, a all good creator and have so much evil in the world? Mm -hmm. And, you know, clearly that's, that's a dilemma that is extremely difficult to reconcile. And so you could say, well, what, what humans have done is we've assigned these things to some other extremely powerful, but um, <laughs> not, you know, so the devil comes in as, right. as playing a role. But then, you know, the question yeah. is, okay, well, God is allowing the devil to, to participate in this creation. There's a really interesting interpretation uh, that I heard recently made by Slavo Žižek about the book of Job. And um, I think actually it was someone else who, who uh, makes this interpretation that he's referring to. And there's this section at the end of the book of Job where after God has... Uh, you're familiar with the story? Yes. So, you know, Job goes through all of these torments even though the, he was a, a good guy. And, uh, and at the end of it, his life is redeemed, and he's like, you know, God, why did you put me through all of that? You know? And, and then there's this kind of uh, monologue that God gives that's basically like, I made all of these incredible, some monstrous things. You know? Mm -hmm. He kind of goes through like a laundry list of all of the, uh, things beyond our imagination that God has created. And people quite often interpret that as being something like, I'm so awesome and great, you just don't understand. But the interpretation, the interpretation that Zizek uh, reports is more like, hey, I'm God and I can't even control these monstrous things that are occurring. You know, it's like, I'm the source of consciousness in the universe, and I think I'm heading towards something just like you do, but mm -hmm. all this crazy fucked up shit keeps happening. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not just God here. We're talking about God and the creation. God is in dialogue with a creation, and the creation mm -hmm. has its own set of, of laws, you could say that even God has to negotiate with. But did he put them into place and then now he's subject to them or are they separate from him entirely? No, I think that they're, they're a, a natural consequence of the dialectic. 
Right. Mm. I think you can you could think of this as a Hegelian dialectic through and through. You have the abstract, which is sometimes called the thesis, which is the thing which is posed. Something new is brought into being, and it's kind of amorphous and no one really understands what it is, just like with the technology. So someone comes up with networking, right? And they think, oh, this is really great. You can communicate from one computer to another. Super cool. You go a few generations down, and then you have the ant- antithesis, right? So it's like, well, we thought it was about communication, but really, actually, now it's about manipulation. We can get in the way of that stream, and we can modify all the things that are being sent back and forth. And so we have this. It's really not actually communication. It's more just mediation, right? Mm-hmm. It turns into something completely different. That would be the antithesis, what he calls a negation, Hegel. And then from the negation relationship with the abstract, you get the concrete, which is what frickin' is. And that's like the metal phase where you have a system, a structure that everything has to operate within. So it's like God sets something in motion, right? And it interacts with the other, which is fundamentally the, the realm of material, you know? Because you can say that everything is a dialectic between understanding and substance or spirit and material, same thing, right? And so the material has its own response, right? Which is a negation to the original abstract. And then you have the concrete. You have the formation of the structure of the universe within which everything is occurring, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the formation of the earth. And the earth has certain properties and certain types of patterns and cycles. And it's within that that all of this activity is occurring. It's within the context of life and the, the promise of death, you could say, that all of the struggling is occurring. So living beings may have a beautiful idea of how we could go about living, but then there's the fact that there is this uh, approaching death and there's all these various kind of painful possibilities that we want to avoid, and that leads people to do things that will cause damage to other things. Mm-hmm. You know, like one of the reasons why I think we're in such an environmental crisis right now is that after World War II, and we saw the incredible destructiveness of our weaponry, we were like, we got to stop this war stuff. And basically what we did is we transferred our aggressions to the natural world, right? Because the war was a way of, you know, how many millions of people died in World War II? It was a lot of people. And that mm-hmm. relieved the pressures that we were on the environment to some degree, and that's what had been happening in the past. Yep. But now it's like, we can't do that anymore because not only is a, is, a, is a nuclear war incredibly destructive to humanity, but it's also super destructive to our environment. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's, I think, why we started to, we developed this international, you know, trading system and, and mm-hmm. an economic kind of warfare way of going about doing things. Alan Watts, who I... I think you're familiar with Alan Watts. I think I've heard you mention him before, but he has a similar perspective on Job as well. I mean, he basically says uh, the devil is the attorney general in that case, you know, someone that people generally don't like, but is a necessary element to justice. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and I think what also what you're saying, you know, just uh, misery being a, fundamental aspect of existence or a necessary aspect uh, seems i mean how can if everything is stories which I, I tend to think is true i mean at least that's how we think about things we think about things in terms of stories you can't have a story without a villain 
or without some sort of challenge. I mean, there's just, it's complete Another. boredom. And in that case, then boredom becomes the, the challenge. So necessarily yeah, well, then problems will be created to solve that problem. I think that's actually one of the, the greatest um, arguments for the creation, like the ultimate, the, the, the original creation was that consciousness could not bear being alone. Mm-hmm. You know, loneliness is too much to bear for any being. If, you're, if there's nothing except the sense of experience and being, and there's nothing to experience, just like a being without actually anything occurring, that must be just the most horrible condition. Right. Basically, basically hell. And, and uh, you know, that's kind of ties into the conversation, which we're probably not going to have. But um, I mean, my, my personal experience of what I would say, the thing which is the thing which is 100% true, and there's no other thing that is 100% true. It is exclusively the only thing which is true for sure. And my experience of that is it is hell. It, it, is, it is complete boredom, complete just like disinterest. Just It's just being forever and ever and ever with nothing really important happening. And uh, mm. I can understand why illusion would be created. I think illusion is great. Huh. That's interesting. Can you clarify, can you clarify the first part of what you were saying there? You were saying like the one thing that, uh, is absolutely true. You're saying that, that, the that from yeah, your point so of view, that I would, I mean, I would say the one thing that we can know for sure, or that I'll just say what I can know for sure. I, I wouldn't even say that. I don't even know that I know anything or that there's some, a I to know something, but for sure, this is happening. You know, phenomena, yes. I think believe what you call it and if you in that place there is no you you know there may be a you which is part of the phenomena but that's not even a necessary aspect of it there can be phenomena without a sense of self and um i i see it a little I, differently but but we're we're in the same we're definitely in the same territory i break mm-hmm. it down as you know phenomena is occurring is the only thing that we know but I do think that baked into that pie is that there is an observer, an experiencer. So I would say if that's true, then the experiencer is the experienced. And so from my point of view, there's no point in saying there's an experiencer. Well, that's why I say um, phenomena is occurring because it, it kind of removes the experiencer from the phrase. I think that's basically yeah. what Descartes uh, cogito ergo sum. I, you know, he says, "I think, therefore I am." But I don't think you need the "I think" in there. I you agree. can basically just say, "Yeah, it's just like thinking, therefore being." But you exactly. know, thinking does mean that there is an experience happening. So in, there must be an experiencer but, in order for an experience I, to I, occur. I don't. I don't agree with that. I think. I mean, Alan Watts also puts. <laughs> he says the only reason that we think that is because of the way our language is constructed, specifically English and the other languages that are similar well, I, to it. I, which I, is all all verbs must have a noun, which is not necessarily true. It's just an aspect. Mm, of I don't language. think that's true. I, this is great because this really gets to the core of it. Now, I know one of your other topics is, is something. You know, what is Buddhist enlightenment, and yeah. the. The thrust of Buddhism, if I understand correctly, you tell me if, if I have this correct, is that when you inhabit presence without any reflection, then the 
self recedes and there's no uh, distinction and therefore there can be no reference made to a self. The self basically disappears, right? Mm -hmm. But what that does is it cuts to, it's sort of like going back through the machine language to the actual, the processor that's just simply a one or a zero, you know? And the one and the zero mm -hmm. are fundamentally the same thing because if you have a, a single uh, being or a non-being, either way, there's no way of differentiating. And without a differentiation, you can't make any determination about the existence of anything. It's just phenomena is occurring, right? Mm -hmm. But these are just modes of existence depending upon the scale that you're residing within, right? Because if you're going to say that that's actually the truth, then you're denying the phenomena that's occurring because this phenomena is occurring. There are distinctions that are happening all around us. We're living in this world. Well, all I'm, all I'm saying is that that's the only thing that we can know for sure, which is that this is happening. Now, I, I mean, I, I believe that people are real. I think people are fundamental to existence more so than electrons are. But that's that's a belief system. I just I just uh, that seems to be the case as far as I can tell. But I do not know that for sure. So I just want to make sure you're not. Well, I think that the, the not confusing the mean that I'm saying that I believe that that's right. All no, I think that's a very good point. And so the question is like, what can be known? But I think that it really is okay. So the question is whether we can say phenomena is occurring without there being an experiencer. So if it can be known, mm. right? So knowing means that there is knowledge. Now, where does knowledge re reside? Well, knowledge resides within a being. You know, otherwise it's just information uh, again, I, without any understanding. I still think it's the noun verb thing. I, I think fundamentally it is knower and known are not separate. They are identical. I think that the experience of being is proof it in, it, in and of itself that there is an experiencer. I really don't think you need to go any, any further beyond that. You know, the fact that you're having the experience you're having right now means that you but i feel like it's just because you're using the 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 language the fact that you are having an experience but i feel like it's just there is an experience where does this idea of a experiencer come from why is that idea necessary no the, the, it's not an idea it's an experience you're experiencing it right now there it doesn't matter whether there's a word or not the fact that the phenomena that is occurring is occurring within your experience means that there's an experiencer or what do you mean by me then? You're the you one who's more. experiencing what's happening to you. The phenomena that's happening from your uh, point within space-time is the experiencer. But okay, so I, I would agree that there are different centers of experience, and so you can call out different instances, and maybe you would call that a your or a me. But it, at the same time, just from my perspective, when I'm in that place, there's no need for this feeling or thought or idea of an experiencer. There is the experience. Well, yes, because you, you've gone back to the root directory, <laughs> right? And, <laughs> and you, you've, yeah. you've uh, eliminated all the distinctions for the sake of reunifying your soul with mm -hmm. with the divine 
and that's a beautiful place to be. But well, not necessarily. I mean, well, yeah, that's this true is a too. Topic that's true too. But uh, <laughs> that is true too. But the point being that if you were residing there now, we wouldn't be having this conversation because there would be no distinction that would perturb the the mind to interact. So there, there is the experience, and then there are things which make up the experience. There could be wind, there could be a feeling of coldness or wetness or anything like that, and these are things which can exist within that experience. And just like those things, there can exist a sense of Callan, a sense of self, a sense of wanting, not wanting, a sense of having ideas, a sense of speaking the words, but that that is just the same as the wind and ultimately it it doesn't have to be here. So therefore it isn't it isn't the fundamental thing. Well, those are things that arise within the experience. That's not the experience itself. The experience itself is the fact that you are able to observe. Right? There is a point of view. There is a receiving node that experiences irrespective of what's in it. It's sort of like there's a screen and upon that screen, a drama is playing itself out. Now the screen is the experience and then the phenomena that's occurring on the screen within the experience, that's the dramas of the likes and the dislikes, the aversions and all the various distinctions that are being made. But those distinctions mm -hmm. have, you know, you can, you can eliminate them and the screen is still there. The observer is still observing. Yeah. The experience is still being had. And I would agree with that, except when that screen, when nothing's on the screen anymore, if, if it's true that there is an experiencer, then when nothing is happening on the screen, the experiencer is still there. And, and I don't think that's true. I think the experiencer is one of the things on the screen. And ultimately, I mean, well, Again, I don't really believe this. I'm just saying, what what can we actually know? And that's for going to that place where the sense of being an experiencer disappears, and there is still experience. Okay, there is still phenomena. I'm going to say that nothing. Say I don't. Nothing can be known I, without an experiencer. How about if I formulate it that way? Who would know? Uh, I don't know. It doesn't. Who work. would know if? <laughs> I just. I feel like these are just these are just artifacts of the way that we're trained to think mostly through our language. It's, I mean, you basically keep saying who would know or how could without someone to, you know, and I'm just like, but that's, if you go back to that fundamental experience, you see that that is not true. That's just the way we see the world. At the and I'm going to say that actually that's just because of the way that you're seeing the world at that moment. You know, that, that, Hey man, that could totally <laughs> be true. But, but if, if, if the sense of experiencer can drop away, I don't know. I, it, it drops away because of the art. It drops away as a consequence of the state of mind, because if the state of mind makes no differentiation, right, then there cannot be observation of being. It's just simply. So being. whatever the experiencer is, whatever the experiencer is that you're referring to, is not the experiencer that I'm saying drops away then because you're saying that it, the experiencer that you're referring to is still there. Yes. When whatever experiencer I'm talking about drops away. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't be able to say that it was there at the time because you're having no distinction, 
right? But it has to be there in order for experience to be had. Being is fundamentally the zone of experience. So there is a being. Mm. And as long as there is a being, then the experiencer is real. Now, the experiencer will be self-reflective when it notices what it's experiencing. And then a distinction has been made, and it can start to refer to it. But without that distinction made, if you get down to the root and there is no distinction between zero and one, right, then you can't refer to anything. You can't refer to there being a being. There's just experience without any reflection. So you can't name it. Mm-hmm. I think it's very dangerous, actually, to be completely honest with you. It's very dangerous to bring that back into the world and say there is no self. That's the main problem that I have with Buddhism. Dude, I totally agree. I'm, I am 100% alignment with you. I, don't, I just don't have a way to intellectually escape the way I think of that, the, what I've been describing here. I mean, you're, you're describing, you seem to believe that whatever you're, the way you're describing it makes sense to you. It still doesn't make sense to me on an intellectual, in the intellectual realm, but that isn't what I actually believe. Like, I believe people are real. I do believe they're an experiencer. And I believe that the, the view of Buddhism, and I don't actually think it's truly the view of Buddhism, it's just the way people think of Buddhism these days, is ultimately this is basically at least apathy and at least evil. Mm-hmm. And uh, people, people being so obsessed with it. I mean, I'm surrounded by people. And basically, all these people, they just, they just think life is suffering. And they're, they're just trying to escape. Mm. And... Um, I mean, I'm I'm very alarmed by the interest in Buddhism and the interpretations that people have mm. of it because I don't think they're accurate, and I think that they ultimately lead to harm. Wow, it's great to hear you say that because that's the conclusion that I've come to a long time ago, and I think you're the only person I've ever been able to uh, share that perspective with because uh, Buddhism certainly has mm. a great rep, you know, and um, I think that a lot of people yeah. uh, don't really understand it. And uh, it's similar, I think, no, in many respects to what's happened in many other traditions where there's kind of a, a narrative that's been uh, put on top of it without people really looking at what the, the nuts and bolts are. I mean, if you just read the Buddha Vakana and it's, it's incredible, it's really powerful spiritual material that requires, I think, a lot of, of deep meditation to really get with it. Um, but instead, you kind of get these overlays and platitudes and like you say i think a lot of it is just about escaping suffering which is really a fool's errand in this world <laughs> you know if, if the devil yes. is baked into the pie you know it's just not you know that that is actually i think another approach to to criticizing buddhism because you could say that fundamentally if you're talking about this world the idea of relieving suffering is an absolute absurdity yeah and to bring Alan Watts back into it, I mean, he, he, he said that this whole idea of life is suffering, which is one of the precepts or something like that, was just a start of a conversation. It's not the conclusion of Buddhism. Mm. Because, or, like the, or like the belief that you need to get rid of desire. And, and that's what people think Buddhism is. You need to get rid of desire. Oh, you're desiring. You know, th- there's a problem here. But really, that's just to get you to realize that how the fuck would you escape desire? <laughs> I mean, you're desiring to desire. Well, I think some people have um, have noted that it's not a bad model to think of desire as being the motive force in the universe. You know, you can say that all 
entities, including so-called inert matter, have their proclivities. They, quote-unquote, want yep. to do a certain thing. And it's in the pursuit of mm -hmm. that behavior that all phenomena ends up occurring. Yep. I so agree. you can say that fundamentally desire is the, um, it's the ruling principle by which the material world goes through its uh, contortions, its suffering. And yep. that, that's why that's, fire yep. is at the apex of the postnatal arrangement. So do you think desire is primarily seeking pleasant things or, es or escaping unpleasant things? I think things? it's both. I think that aversion and attraction are inextricably entwined. Mm. And that quite often they turn into each other. <laughs> That's kind of a yin-yang thing. You know, anything at an extreme turns into the opposite. Anyone who's struggled with addiction knows that the thing which was pleasant becomes extraordinarily un unpleasant if you go into excess, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, coming from the place where, I mean, my I feel like my experience of enlightenment, what I would call, I mean, basically the experience I described earlier, I think that's essentially what Buddhism is trying to point people towards, though I don't actually think ultimately it wants them to focus there. Mm. Um, I think that that is, I mean, for me, it was horrible. It, it's just, it's, no, there's nothing like bad about it. It's just the most painful boredom <laughs> that you could ever imagine. And, and so sometimes I just think everything, all desire, even like seeking out really nice things, is just trying to run away from that horrible boredom. Well, that gets back to the... And, and I agree. I, don't, I think that's only one way to look at it, but, but I sometimes get stuck in that way of looking at it. I guess at some point or another, I'm going to have to do one of those, you know, I don't know, week-long retreats or something like that, where you really just sit and... But I, I, I mean, a long time ago, I decided, you know, there's something about seated meditation that seems so artificial and so punitive oh, yeah. and so yeah. not like conducive mm. to the actual state of mind that's being discussed, you know, and especially in Zen. Yeah, Zen is totally it's it's horrible. I, I don't even do it like I'm living at a Zen monastery right now and I do not sit. <laughs> wow. Because I think it's just so, so horrible. I like the idea of letting the mind settle, but I don't think you need to sit in a painful position to do that. It's interesting. Uh, one of the other things that Slavo Žižek likes to talk about is uh, is one of the main proponents of Zen Buddhism, who, uh, hmm. oh, what is his name? I, I believe his name is Suzuki, if I remember correctly. No, no, no. It's, uh, hmm. I'll have to look that up. I don't remember right now, but... He was apparently uh, a real supporter of the militaristic mode within Japan in, in, in the war. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, the kamikaze pilots. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And like the Bahagavita being used by, by, the, mm -hmm. by the Nazis, the elimination of the self was a technique that could be used to basically put people into a state of mind that would allow them to commit atrocities they could not otherwise commit. Now, you might say that that actually makes sense from an evolutionary biology point of view, where for the sake of the maintenance of the group, the reduction of the other to a non-being, right, 
would require that there would be a reduction of the self to a non-being. And so it's sort of like the last-ditch effort on the part of a organization of consciousness to maintain its integrity, which, you know, I think it's pretty clear that the Japanese society at that time was experiencing an existential crisis, and that, and that fundamentally they, uh, they lost that battle big time. And so, you know, the lengths to which people will go under those kinds of conditions when things get really that bad, you know, it, it goes to show you where, where thought will lead people. So, yeah, I, I feel very concerned when people start heading down those roads. It's, it seems to me to indicate that we're in a, a far more desperate situation than one might otherwise think. Mm -hmm. So to I quickly want to go back to you basically said that you felt like you should, you know, do like a week long retreat or, or something like that. Uh -huh. uh, I mean, I, I, I would totally advise against it. <laughs> I, I think that if, if you want to know what Buddhism is ultimately trying to point you towards looking at at least briefly, you, if you actually want to know, you'll be able to see it. I mean, it, it basically took me like an hour and a half of just insisting that I face it and I faced it. You know, I didn't need to sit and meditate for years and years and years. And I'm surrounded by people who have been meditating for decades and they don't know shit. They don't, they don't, they wouldn't know what I was talking about. Hmm. So I don't, I don't think it, I don't think practice meditation practice. I don't think is especially helpful. It comes down to whether you want to know or not. Yeah. I think there's something to that. I think that meditation is a wonderful thing and that in many respects yes, it's like, similar to um, each of our relationship to God you know it's a personal thing and you have to find the way that you can bring the mind to rest and eliminate the distinctions you know I, I really like the, the mode that's described in Patanjali you know neutralizing thought objects I think that's a beautiful way of thinking of it it's super elegant super simple and it can be practiced no matter what position your body is in I think you know maybe maybe seated seated upright is good but you can do it when you're lying down too you can do it when you're walking around there's no reason why you have to you know hold a particular what do they call the mudras in the hand position or something like that you know oh yeah um, yeah, yeah. And obviously, there's an incredible amount of variety within even sanctioned uh, meditation traditions from around the world. So that, to me, indicates that there's not one correct way of doing it. And we each have to find the way that makes sense to us. And I think it's a really good thing to work at. Uh, it's basically about controlling the mind. And that is fundamentally the instrument that determines the way we interpret the phenomena that's occurring in many respects some people would so I, would argue with I that i agree with, i agree with you i mean i think meditation is hugely beneficial and, and really the benefits do depend on what type of meditation you're doing but when ultimately you're talking about the goal of seeing fundamental truth i believe it's it is beyond it's not really related to any of that it's just i, I don't think i was saying anything about seeing know. fundamental truth <laughs> I, I think I was talking about just okay. canceling out thought objects. Um, right, but I had been talking about 
my experience of, of what I would call enlightenment. And then you had said that you felt like you should do a week long thing, which seemed to imply to me, you were saying, you know, you feel like you should have that experience. And so I was just like saying, well, if that's what you're going for, which by the way, I don't recommend, <laughs> I actually think you are in a really good place. You're already on the right track. Why do you need to go back there? I was, sort, no I was sort of kidding when I said that. And, and the reason, <laughs> okay. the reason I said it was mainly because I just, I haven't had that experience. You know, I've gone to maybe a weekend retreat was the most, and it wasn't like a heavy duty, like meditate 12 hour a day type of thing. Uh, so I'm familiar with that scene to some extent, but I'm not familiar enough with it to really be able to say that I know what it's about. Um, although you're certainly confirming a lot of my suspicions, so I think I'll save myself the trouble and probably not do it because I probably wouldn't do it anyway. I just I'm not inclined to, and I don't have the time. And you know, there's just sort of this background thing. Like if I'm going to make a statement about something, I really should have the experience myself to back it up. But there's only so much time in a lifetime and probably, you know, even one day sitting 12 hours is probably not, <laughs> you know, and, and my favorite yeah. uh, texts are, are quite, um, when it comes to this subject, they're usually kind of ridiculing and dismissive of, uh, of a lot of these practices. Like there's this wonderful master Foyan, Zen master Foyan, who, uh, there's a translation by Thomas Cleary that's just, it's just so great. It talks a lot about uh, false practices and the absurdity of people trying to reach some kind of enlightenment by torturing themselves. <laughs> you know? It's just, yeah. Yeah. it's a great, it's a great read. And then there's uh, similar types of things within some of the Taoist uh, writings where mm -hmm. a lot of the practices are sort of brought into question and, it's a far simpler thing than I think a lot of the, but you know, a lot of this also has to do with the kind of elaborate instrumentation that, that builds up around, uh, cultural conventions, yep. you know, it, like yep. almost every spiritual inspiration gets immediately seized upon, co-opted, and then all of this, uh, unnecessary, irrelevant ornamentation springs up around it. And it's just, that seems to be another, yep. uh, fundamental law of nature. So in some respects, we could say that the dialectic that's occurring between spirit and substance, or between understanding and substance, spirit and material, is that the spirit, spiritual inspiration is somewhat abhorrent to the conditions of the material. And so the material adapts to lessen the blow of the spirit and the understanding. It's, it's, a, it's a basic yin-yang interaction. You know, they're, they're dancing, but they're not on the same team. They have completely different objectives mm -hmm. and material doesn't like to yeah. be discomforted and, and, uh, and have its defects pointed out to it. Right. So there's no greater sanit sanitizer than the truth. They say something like that, you know, so shedding light on things quite often means everything has to change and and material constructions, you know, the, the metal of the previous generations, it doesn't want to change. It's not going to change easily. It's going to be extremely unpleasant for things to really change. And there's your resistance. It's just that's the basic dialectic going on. So it's it's another one of those sort of unfortunately, this is how it's unfortunately, but seems like we wouldn't have anything without it being that way. So. Fortunately, perhaps. Yeah, so 
So there's, you know, there's the acceptance side of it, which is, I think, probably the only realistic strategy. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if you look yeah. at it, I don't, and this probably isn't true for all people, but I would say experience or life is large, is more pleasant than it is unpleasant. And I don't know. I mean, I'm probably pretty biased. I've had a pretty nice life compared to most people throughout history, but even imagining you know, the moment-to-moment -moment experience of most people, even in really bad situations, I feel like most of the time it's not bad. It's it's at least mildly good. So that could be wrong, but yeah, I really wonder. Then, then, then actually the universe balances out in favor of good, and the bad is there to ensure that we can feel that contrast and actually feel the good, because without the bad, we wouldn't know the good. Mm, no doubt. That's absolutely true. And I, I, I don't know about the degree to which most people are experiencing good most of the time. I mean, it's an interesting idea, and I sure hope it's true. Well, if we carry it beyond humans, I think it's easier to imagine that. I mean, I think an ant's life is mostly good. A plant's life is mostly good. There's a few instances where it's not, you know, it lives in a, a plant. It has horrible soil and very little water, and the sun beats down on it. But for the most part, most plant life is fairly decent well it will only really grow so. unless we're like trying to force it to grow somewhere it'll only really grow where it can you know so the outliers are right. going to have if a more is, difficult time of it right if it if it is horrible then it ends itself yeah I and mean, that's kind of a, a merciful aspect of the universe right that's true very true mm -hmm. huh well you know somehow or another we've already uh spoken for 88 minutes and i feel like <laughs> <laughs> And uh, <laughs> I feel like we could. Con I feel like we didn't even start the conversation. Oh, no, start wasn't this still the intro? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I am somewhat aware that you know people who listen to these things uh, have a limited yeah. amount of time, and I don't want to go on too long. I feel yeah. like we've covered some wonderful ground here, and I, I uh, think there's mm. obviously many more conversations to be had, and I look forward to them. But I think that f perhaps for the time being, we should. Uh, call this a wrap and um, and pick it up again sometime soon. What do you think? All right. Well, but, all we have. But are we going to have? A moment? Yeah, we should have a, a little assembly of silence moment, which you know, admit it, admittedly, <laughs> is it okay? Is not. Is it okay that? I mean, I felt like the whole thing behind the assembly of silence moment was that it was not planned, but I feel like a lot of the times it kind of has to be planned. Well, certainly we didn't plan this. We just happened to stumble across it and we referred to it, which is maybe the mistake, you know, but I don't think there's, <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with having referred to it briefly before we actually enter it. Cool. Cool. so much con that was great that was a lot yeah, of fun that was fun thank you <laughs> yeah looking forward to the next time me too all right stay in touch all right take it easy okay yep bye-bye bye-bye
Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home.